Uh, one of the icebreaker questions, common questions that one gets uh, if you're uh, you know, at a party or you're at the dinner table uh, with some new people, it goes like this. If you could go back to any point in history, what time period would you visit? It's sort of the Michael J. Fox, you've got a DeLorean, you've got you know, 121 gigawatts. Where, where, it is that, where do you want to go? What do you want to explore? What do you want to see? And I mean, we have a variety of answers, don't we? We uh, we want to maybe we want to go and explore a medieval castle, or maybe we'd you know love to uh, be in part of the old west. But typically, Christians answer the same way that that if you could go at any time, any place, you'd want to go back to the first century to Galilee to walk the streets as one of Jesus' disciples. True? Yes. Here's one thing that might that might tempt you to get right back into the uh, the time machine and come back into the 21st century. The smell. Because the ancient world smelled absolutely horrible. You know, it, this was a time before running water for showers and deodorant and soap and toothpaste and dental floss. I mean, if you're anything like me and a little OCD about personal hygiene, uh, imagine lasting 30 minutes in such a world that was so poor. And, of course, poverty rank poverty, it, it, it smells. It smells terrible. Um, and that's why the rich people in the first century would use perfume to mask their, their body odor. Uh, perfumes were a status symbol, a status enhancer even. Um, they say that you could smell a prince before you saw him around the corner. They would wear perfume. And so let me set the scene for us. We're in John chapter 12 today. In chapter 11, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, famous episode in his life. In chapter 12, they decide to throw for Jesus a, celebra- a celebratory dinner to honor him for that astounding miracle. In, tw- in chapter 12, we hear the cast of characters. You have Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who is busy organizing the meal, making sure that it's well cooked and, and served. You have Lazarus, who is back from the dead, maybe a little shell-shocked sitting there. You have um, all of Jesus' disciples. They're around the table, and Jesus is there too. He's in the seat of honor. He's being celebrated. And then finally, you have this other sister, Mary, who's about to do something with a perfume which will elicit a sharp rebuke from Judas Iscariot. I mean, he's very upset with what he she does with the perfume. But in Mark's version of the story, we read that it wasn't just Judas who was upset. Mark 15 or 14, verse 5, Judas says, well, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And it says, and they rebuked her harshly. They rebuked her. In other words, whatever it was that Mary did, it was so outrageous, pretty much the whole room of men started yelling at her. What, what, what was it about her actions with this fragrance that made them so upset. Well, let's read verse 11, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. When Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, or said, then Mary took about a pint of Purinard, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and he came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Let's pray one more time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us and take this word, write it on our hearts, uh, fill our minds and our spirits with what we need to hear from this passage from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mark's version of the story gives us a few details that are not found in John's version. We're told that the value of the perfume was 300 denarii, which would be basically the equivalent of $50,000 on the, on the high end, 50K. So very expensive. We're told it was a pint of perfume, a pint, so like about 11 ounces, you know, almost the equivalent of a can of soda. And we know that this was a, a nard that grew, of all places, in India, that they would import all the way from India. So it was, you know, this particular plant grew there, and that's why the perfume was so costly. I think it's safe to assume that unless Lazarus and his sisters were like fabulously wealthy people in the first century, um, or they came from a fabulously wealthy family, that this perfume must have been something like a family heirloom. I mean, it probably was one of, if not the most valuable possession they owned. And my guess, and it's just a, a guess, but my guess is that the anointing here is, is probably prearranged among the siblings. Um, you know, Mary probably, she would have volunteered for the assignment, but I think what would happen, the women didn't eat in the room with the men. The men ate by themselves, the women were in a, in a different room. So the, the siblings probably agreed that she would take this family heirloom, and during the meal, she'd come into the dining area where the men were seating and where Jesus was at the head of the table, and she would do the culturally appropriate thing that you would that you would, the way to show honor to the guest of honor, she would take this, a few drops of the perfume and, and anoint the guest of honor. So just imagine, um, Martha's busy in the kitchen preparing the next course, and, and all of a sudden she's like, um, that's strange. I hear men's voices raised in the other room. What's happening? And then maybe some of the men start walking out, out and they're like coughing and, and gasping for air, <laughs> looking angry. And then she smells it, like the fragrance. It, it has filled the entire house. So what is Martha going to think at that moment? Mary, Martha's got to be the older child, right? <laughs> Mary has to be the bohemian secondborn, right? <laughs> what is she going to think at that moment? She's like, Mary, what have you done? And Lazarus is at the table uh, and... He's like, Mary, what have you done? What has she done? I, I suspect that she's done something that she wasn't even intending to. I mean, she went in, and my guess is she was going to put a few drops on his head, just as they had agreed upon. But when she came into the room and she saw her brother back from the dead sitting at the table, and when she saw Jesus, whom she loved, sitting there, like something 
exploded, absolutely exploded inside of her. And what Mark's gospel tells us is that instead of pulling the stopper out of the, uh, uh, the stopper of the lid out of the, the vial, she basically, she breaks the neck of the vase. She breaks it, which means it's all coming out, all coming out, all $50,000. The, the bottle can't be reused. It, and so Mark's gospel says she begins by anointing his head and then John says she anoints his feet. So you get the idea. From head to toe, the entirety of the perfume. Um, it's an incredible scene. One of the most like, beautiful scenes that we have in the Gospels. Well, what, what, are, what are we to make of it? Uh, I guess uh, a point of application to start out. You know, I assume you've noticed that you know, the, the difficulty of spontaneous generosity is that it's surprisingly difficult to be spontaneously and extravagantly generous the more you have rather than the less. Like, you think that having more would mean it would be easier to be open-handed and, and less calculating with your finances. But actually, n- no, it's not. Like, when we reach a certain level of wealth, um, it can have the opposite effect, that the more makes us more more calculating. It's like you have this internal accountant always speaking to you all the time, like running valuations. Um, and if you're anything like me, you have a lot of fear of making wrong decisions, and especially wrong financial decisions. And so uh, it can be just hard to be spontaneously generous with what we have. You know, Mary, maybe she just intended to pour a, just a drop or two, but when that something inside of her, as I said, it exploded, she realized that a few drops is not enough. A few drops is not enough, and a gush of love comes on her, and she acts upon that love. What I respect is that she acted, and oftentimes we do not. I mean, I'll, this is a little bit of like inside Christian baseball type uh, discussion, but how many times, if you've been a Christian for a while, how many times have you been in at church or in a worship service and, and they call the missionaries to the front and the missionaries kind of give their presentation and, you know, it's a good presentation and you you love where they're going and what they're doing and, I mean, you see that they're fully committed and you, and you know that they have financial needs and they need money to get out onto the field. And you're, you're sitting there listening to the presentation and you're like, I should give to this. I really, oh yeah, I should definitely give to this. But then there's another voice inside of you that's saying, well, maybe you should pray more about it. <laughs> or maybe you should sleep on it. And, you know, let me sleep on it. Let me pray on it. We put it off onto the next day. And lo and behold, the next day, the belief is no longer nearly as demanding as it was on us in that moment. It's as if, like, we, we tap the brakes if we tap the brakes long enough, the belief, it'll just go away. And often it does. Not so with her. They call her action, what? A waste. They said, this is a waste. This is wasteful spending. You wasted that money. But then the irony of the story we're going to see at the end of uh, next week is the real waste was 250 bucks. You say, what is that? Well, that's 30 shekels. 30 shekels is the amount of money that Judas sold Jesus out for. She, she dropped 50K on him, and he sold, he sold Jesus out for 250 bucks. Before I move on, um, I, I know I've met a lot of people in the church 
who are afraid of scarcity. Uh, and I'm one of those. Like, we, we grew up with a scarcity mindset. We're just afraid. We worry that the, when the rainy day comes, there won't be anything left. And we see the escalating costs of, uh, like, medical care and, and drugs, pharmaceutical drugs. And, and we're, we're just really worried that, what if I lose my job? Like, the rainy day comes. Um, we're just, we have a scarcity mindset. And that's why. When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see a person staring back at you that would drop 50, 50 grand on Jesus? I mean, me, when I look at that myself in the mirror, the, the answer is no. Like, I'm way too afraid, way too calculating, way too concerned about making mistake. What Mary's action shows us is, like, the real waste is probably just all the wasted missed opportunities that we waste on our fears. Okay, moving on in the story. What happens next? Well, this is kind of an obvious point. You may be aware that Jewish women in that day wore their hair up, kind of like in a bun. Um, That was the custom. And yes, it was scandalous for a woman to let down their hair. And I've read some guys that say that letting down one's hair could actually be grounds for divorce. That just seems a little, like, over the... I kind of doubt that. I really doubt that. But they were not allowed to let their hair down in the presence of other men, and they were not allowed to let their hair down even in the presence of boys that who were not her sons. Basically, like... The patriarchy of that of that day and time, it was considered publicly immodest to have your hair down if you're a woman among men. And, you know, like if you pay attention to the news, I mean, there are all kinds of issues like that in, say, Iran today. And what do we do with uh, hair up, hair down? What's remarkable to me is think about the guys around that table. They had spent the last three years of their lives with Jesus. They had lived with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week as his disciples. They followed in the dust of their rabbi. That's one of the ways that Jews talked about discipleship. They had served Jesus in tons of different capacities, three years in almost every single way, except for this one. They had never touched his feet. It was considered um, forbidden for a disciple of a rabbi to uh, to do anything like untie their shoes or to wash their feet, like that was too degrading. The only person in their society that would be uh, that would do that would simply be a slave. A slave would. Um, you would never remove your rabbi's sandals, all because feet were just that filthy. So imagine the, for these guys what it was like. First off, they're. She's like, there, she's letting her hair down. That would have scandalized them. But then she's touching his feet with her hair. That would have sent them over the edge. What is she, crazy? Does this woman have no dignity? Does she not know what she's doing? Now, if you know the story of Jesus, something like this had happened earlier with a prostitute. And so maybe they're like, is she doing performance art? Is she trying to reenact the, the prostitute, and which she did earlier in the Gospels? Does she even have an ounce of self-respect? All those questions had to have gone through their minds. You know, if we had grown up in the first century in the Middle East, 
we and those were our cultural taboos and that was our culture of origin um we likely would have been sick to our stomachs too because it really was considered so unnatural what she was doing um you notice that the, there's only one man in the room that's comfortable with what she's doing <laughs> and it's the man that's being touched it was pointed out to me i was listening to a podcast truth over tribe was it truth and they were interviewing preston sprinkle and it was a throwaway line lucy I think it was Truth Over Tribe. Didn't they interview Preston Sprinkle? And Yes. And it was a throwaway, throwaway line that he gave in that interview. He said how Jesus Christ, he violated so many cultural standards of masculinity. And I, I thought, wow, you're, you're kind of right. Like, he was a single man of, mar- of marital age. He was in his mid to late 30s. Like, why would you not be married at that stage of your life? That would have been considered unmasculine. He's a man who has a turn-the-other-cheek ethic. If you slap me on the right side of my face, I'll let you slap me again on the left. Um, That's unmasculine. He serves people of lower social status. He washes the feet of the man who will betray him. Um, He's touched by women repeatedly in the Gospels, and, and even twice with women in their hair, like... That all of that is so culturally other, <laughs> and he's okay with it. He's, he's okay with whatever the stigma associated with that might be, and he's okay with her action, um, and she's okay with the fact that he's okay, and it doesn't matter if nobody else is okay, because nobody else is okay. Um, I love the fact that she doesn't care what the men think, and she doesn't care what her sister thinks, and her sister had to be furious, and she doesn't care what her brother thinks, and her brother had to be furious, and she doesn't care what you think or what I think. At that moment, she's the very picture of freedom. She's like, she's got to be experiencing um, maybe the Bible's greatest example of the freedom of, of love, the pure freedom of love. <clears throat> so there's a story John Stott was a famous pastor at All Souls in London, a famous church in the UK, and a remarkable man in his own right. Well, a few years, quite a few years ago, Stott and a Latin American theologian by the name of Rene Padilla uh, went to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and they were uh, doing some type of conference there. And so I, I read about this in a Christianity Today um, magazine. As they were interviewing um, Rene Padilla, who you see died a couple of years ago. But so what happens is that they get to Buenos Aires, the, the cab drops them off several blocks from their, their hotel in a rainstorm, and they have to walk in the pouring rain to the hotel. Um, and they're both exhausted from the trip, so they kick off their muddy shoes on the floor, and they fall into bed. Well, the next morning, Rene Padilla wakes up, and he's like, um, where's John? So he goes out into the main um, area, you know, common area where they were staying, and there's John Stott. And what is he doing? He's polishing. He's cleaning the mud off of and polishing Rene Padilla's shoes. And Padilla, he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're John Stott, you know, the world-famous preacher and author. And, and John Stott looks at him and he says, you know what, brother? Jesus, Jesus taught us to wash one another's feet, but you don't need me to do that because you have a shower. So I'm doing the next best thing. I'm washing your shoes. Did you catch the fact that basically she's washing his feet here? She's washing Jesus' feet. And then very soon after, 
Jesus is going to do the same for his disciples. He's going to do the unthinkable, and he's going to wash his disciples' feet. And then at the end of washing his disciples' feet in the upper room, he's going to say to his disciples and, and all of his subsequent disciples, what? That you're, you're supposed to do the same thing. You're to wash one another's feet. What I love about the story is that where does the domino start? It starts with her. She begins the, the chain of dominoes, of foot washing. Another question that I asked myself as I was looking at the passage, what might she be trying to say to Jesus by this action? It's always hard to mind read another person, probably especially hard to mind read uh, somebody from, you know, that lived thousands and thousands of years ago from a different culture than your own, and always dangerous to try to uh, read into stories that way, but... I'll try. <laughs> I, I think she may be saying to him, Lord, Lord, I, I'm going to give you everything that I have um, and everything that I am. Like, there's nothing that I won't do for you, Lord. It's obvious. There's nothing I won't do for you. If I will do this, there's nothing I won't do for you. There's nothing that you can't ask me for um, because I don't care about anything else. I don't care the approval of this person or that person you know, my heart is yours. Like My heart is yours. And what I have, um, I just simply give it to you. There's a biography on Tim Keller that's come out recently, and it's kind of a biography on how his thinking developed. And as I was reading it last week, this was a section that I highlighted. You know, I think he's one of the best preachers of the last century. And um, Keller wrote that as a preacher, he could sense the moment when he crossed this boundary from information information to impression. Uh, he didn't mind the congregation taking notes in the first part of the sermon as they were learning information, but if they stopped taking notes and looked up at him in the end, then he knew he had touched their affections. They didn't need him to explain how honey is sweet. They tasted it themselves. Like, that's kind of how he thought about preaching, is the goal is just not to simply tell you that honey is sweet, but for you to taste it in the moment. And, you know, it takes a really unique preacher to be able to do that. I wish I could do that a lot more. But he says, he goes on, like, then when suffering would eventually come, when life would eventually disappoint, they would know more than the fact that God loves them. They would experience the love of God as palpable. And that last line is the one that jumped out to me, like, what does it mean to experience the love of God as, as palpable? Because I think it's a palpable love that has to fuel Mary's love. Like, she's experienced the love of God not as something, a fill-in-the-blank that you have on a test question and answer. Like, she, she, it's like she, God's love tastes sweet like honey to the tongue, and she's, she's just recently tasted it. Uh, and... You know, I know how easy, how easy it is to come to church and, you know, you just don't feel that way at all. I mean, there's 52 Sundays a year. <laughs> and, you know, God's love doesn't feel palpable 52 Sundays a year. You know, it's very easy to kind of, like, go through our spiritual life and just feel empty from time to time at the car and say, I know that God loves me, but, man, I, I just do not feel it. It's the Ed Sheeran song where he asked the question in um, Bloodstream. He said, ask, how did I get so faded? We get faded out on the inside. And I don't have a magic you know, answer to tell you how to get unfaded other than I would tell you this. like Just admit it. 
admitting it goes a long way. Like, when you come to passages like this and you see somebody's love exploding on the pages of Scripture and you're like, I'm a million miles away from that, then at least say to God something like this, Lord, what I just read is the kind of relationship I want to cultivate with you. I don't have that relationship, but I want to cultivate that with you. And what I need is for you to make the good news of the gospel come alive in me. Like, I need to feel that your love for me is palpable. Um, And if you'll do that, then um, I can begin to take steps, further steps, in loving you and other people in this way. Briefly, before I end, I want to just analyze ever so briefly the power dynamics in that room because there's a major imbalance, isn't there? (laughs) There's a single woman walking into the room doing something scandalous with 13, 14 other other men. Um, In other words, she experiences the power of love in spite of the room, in spite of the culture of the room, in spite of like, all the cultural factors of the room being against her. The room is not a safe spot, but the love of Christ is what, you know, compels her. I asked the question, what is, a, what is a church's culture? And the definition that I like is a culture is what you smell and feel. A culture is the intangibles of a place. It's the vibe that you get in a church. You know, I find it amazing how two churches can have the exact same doctrinal statement. Like, we agree on this, and we agree on this, and we agree on this, but they can have totally different cultures, totally different vibes. Like, we can line up with another Presbyterian church on the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms, but, I mean, the two churches could have had have such different cultural vibes. Like, the gospel says that Jesus Christ lived and was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again for your salvation to set you free. Um, what the gospel, that's the, that's the doctrine of the gospel. What, what the gospel ought to do is create a culture, a church culture of grace, of beauty in human relationships. It creates humane, gentle, healing, reassuring, gracious relationships. That's what the gospel should do. And I don't know about you, but not enough churches feel like that. You know, they don't feel like a culture of grace. There's not vulnerability. There's not a gentle transparency in admitting what's not working in our lives because there's a lot that's not working in our lives. Um, talking about what's hard for us, talking about places that we're failing, um, the beliefs in the Bible that we have reservations about. Uh, I mean, even the patterns of sin in our lives that like nobody knows about. And we, What we do is we just cover up everything with niceness. I hope you hear that this is um, a theme that I have returned to quite a bit because I just want us to have a culture of grace, (laughs) you know, a real culture of grace, a a culture where it's okay not to be okay on Sunday in a culture like if we're one-on-one or maybe in a small group, like we can confess the things that are not all that great about us and air our dirty laundry and, you know, um, in some places, there's an unspoken belief that I would be crazy to share the real me here. And I, I don't want that to be true of this place. I, you know, a church can be solid in its doctrinal statement, and it can unsay by its culture what is said by its doctrine and not even realize it. And 
Um, let's, not, let's not let that be the case here. Finally, the fragrance lasted. So this event takes place on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. So that's one the reason I'm preaching it today. The next Sunday is Palm Sunday. A dear friend of mine who happens to be here today, Pastor Tom Manning and Melissa Manning, uh, Tom's going to be preaching next Sunday, and we're going to be in Dallas for Ivan and Jenna's wedding. Yay! Very excited about that. But this event takes place on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. So the next morning, it means that Jesus is going to ride on the back of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, where he begins the last week of his life, the most intense week of suffering in his life. Um, on the count of three, what I want you to do, just amuse me here. On the count of three, I want you to just take in a deep breath. All right? One, two, three. The fragrance had to have remained on him the whole week, all through Holy Week. It had to. It was 11 ounces of the most expensive perfume in the world. They don't take baths. They don't have showers. She poured it from top to bottom on him. She bathed him. Basically, he has a perfume bath. She bathed him in it. And I got to believe that all through the, the hardest, most intense week of his life, when he is saving us, the fragrance of her love remained on him. When Judas leans in to kiss him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he smelled it. When the soldiers you know, lean forward and beat him and place a crown of thorns on his head, they smelled it. Uh, when, uh, when our Lord dies, he, he doesn't smell like a poor man he smells like a rich man. Remember I said that you could smell a prince around a corner before you saw him? He smelled like a king on the cross, and it was because of her. Um, I think that this, the Mary's role in this passage is, is almost like a prophet. You know, in the Old Testament, God would oftentimes, when they're anointing a king, a new king, he would commission a prophet to go and to take oil and to anoint the king's head with oil and say, basically, this is the man whom I have selected to be the Mashiach, the Messiah, the king of Israel. Well, I mean, don't you see it? Mary is the prophet he has chosen for his son to anoint him for his triumph, the triumph through his death, burial, and resurrection. So as we go into Holy Week and as you read the stories, I Will you have this in the background of your mind? When you, when you see Joseph of Arimathea pulling off Jesus' body from the cross and carrying it, would you remember that he probably smelled it? When you see them wrapping his body his, with the, the cloths from the tomb, they smelled it. It's the fragrance of love, of generosity, of grace. And it's a fragrance that we need more in our lives and in our churches. Amen? Amen.